good afternoon to our UK uh, listeners and good morning to our uh, listeners in Canada. We have with us today the Right Honourable Mike Lake, a Canadian Member of Parliament for Edmonton and Wittaskawin. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the platform today. Um, how are you, Mike? And I suppose it's best to start with what's the status like in Canada? You know, it's uh, we've got some challenges here. We're a little bit behind uh, behind a lot of the world in terms of uh, vaccinations. Where uh, you know our, our government's trying to catch up, but uh, but uh, we didn't have them in January and February when other other countries were uh, were vaccinating at higher levels, and we're in a, a bit of a third wave right now. Um, hoping that uh, you know, hoping that we can get on top of it and. Uh, um, you know, with spring here now in Canada, it makes it a little bit easier for people to get outside, which is uh, a good thing for mental health and, and everything else if we're, uh, if we're still trying to maintain distance. But uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully we get on top of it and uh, can enjoy a, enjoy a good summer. We'll, we'll definitely go into COVID-19 and, and, and Canada uh, a bit more, uh, a bit later on. But it's worth letting our uh, viewers know that Mike's actually already been on our uh, CFOC uh, platform before he made he made his debut a few weeks ago at our uh, girls education launch event. Uh, our parliamentary chair Helen Grant has been tasked with a uh, a job by our government to get forty million more girls into education across the globe. And um, so this event is now actually available on all of our streaming platforms. Um, now, Mike, you are on the executive committee for the International Parliamentary Network for Education. What what's that organisation about? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, dealing with the sustainable development goals and really dealing with the challenges of, of education in the developing world, the fact that there are, you know, tens of millions of kids, uh, school age kids, even primary school age kids who are, are not in school in many parts of the world. Of course, this is uh, even increased during COVID and become more of a challenge during COVID. Uh, a predominantly, uh, predominantly, or a higher number of those uh, are girls. Um, people with uh, with disabilities are oftentimes, particularly developmental disabilities, uh, invisible in the school system. And so, the, there's two big organizations uh, globally that work on these issues: the Global Partnership for Education and Education Cannot Wait. And um, those organizations, uh, Education Cannot Wait, actually uh, provided funding for a, a network of parliamentarians from around the world who are focused on this issue. And now I think we're approaching 300 parliamentarians from all parts of the globe focused on um, fixing this issue, uh, working with governments, working with each other. And I think that's the power of this is the network of um, parliamentarians from the the uh, developed world and the developing world working together on the challenges, and uh, so it's 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 a pretty exciting initiative. Um, looking to increase our numbers even more. What kind of impact has COVID nineteen had on education across the globe? Is, is there something that you've noticed in particular trend wise? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that the the challenge, of course, is uh, um, you know, in in my part of the world, in Canada, you know, we, we're facing challenges with kids um, having to learn remotely um, at times, uh, at times in school, at times out of school. Um, but we have the ability to uh, to learn remotely, and uh, and when kids are in school. We have the resources to make sure that they're safely distanced and, uh, you know, and working on working safe in safe environments. 
you could imagine that uh, in other countries, it might be more difficult. And then you take it even further to like a conflict zone or, you know, somewhere like a refugee camp where it would be really, really difficult. And, you know, they're already dealing with issues uh, around uh, around food insecurity as well. In fact, um, our next IPNED meeting, so uh, is is uh, where we bring parliamentarians together on on Zoom to have these conversations. Is going to be with David Beasley from the World Food Program, who's going to be talking about that. And of course, the World Food Program um, just uh, just won the Nobel Peace Prize for their work in 2020. Um, it, such important work, and there's of course a, a, a real intersection between food and uh, ability of kids to learn. With this. Uh, education role obviously uh, entails more than just girls' education. Uh, you, you lightly touched on it there in terms of um, uh, disabilities and uh, and other people sort of learning difficulties. I think that's probably uh, a good point to mention um, about autism. Um, it is Autism Awareness Month uh, this month, and you have a great understanding. I've been a, a global advocate on autism. Um, not only that, you also have a personal experience in the effects of autism with your son, uh, Jaden. Um, I suppose it'd be a great point to share the clip of you and Jaden, which went viral pretty recently. Yeah, it's from a, a few years ago, and it's actually it's actually just f- filmed on a, my daughter's iPhone on the couch behind me. I will right. uh, I'll share my screen, but uh, um, this is a, a, a song that uh, I've sung to Jaden since he was a little kid. He's 25 now. Um, but, uh, when he was little here, let me just make sure I'm sharing the right screen. Um, there we go. Jump over to there. Um, I, can you see the right, the, the proper screen now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good, good, good. So when he was uh, a little boy, I, I used to work for the Edmonton Oilers. So I, I was gone a lot in the evenings, uh, at hockey games, uh, for work. And then as a member of parliament, I traveled a lot. And so I'd sing this song and you might not pick up the words, but the words to the song go, think of me every day, hold tight to what I say, and I'll be close to you even from far away. Know that wherever you are, it is never too far. When you think of me, I'll be with you. And so I would sing this song to him. And uh, just recently, he started to sing back uh, when when uh, people are singing. So this is uh, this is Jaden. And when we shared it, it went to about 1.5 million views. I think it's here we go. Oh, wow. Here, Look at my eyes. Good job. That was nice. And before I switch back to you, I'll, oh, I don't know if you can see it there, but uh, um, one of the first pieces of feedback I got from somebody uh, um, when I shared that was that uh, while you have a lot of remotes, it was someone on the autism spectrum who they were zeroed in on the 10 remotes that were sitting beside me on the couch. So, um, <laughs> but it's a, it's something that we use, uh, lead off our, our presentations around the world with that video as a bit of an introduction to Jaden. But it's, it's an amazing video. And um, I suppose it really uh, captivates the sort of journey that you've been on as a parent um, in terms of having a child of autism. How has that uh, been? And furthermore, what sort of things do you think the sort of next stages for you know the globe, uh, Canada in particular, can do towards 
helping uh, children with autism and parents in particular dealing with also autistic children? You know, as we're dealing with developmental disabilities generally, so I get a chance to work with some pretty cool people. And we've been working with uh, Tim Shriver on this. Of course, his mom founded Special Olympics. And uh, and then, of course, the Global Partnership in Education Cannot Wait. One of the things that I often think about is someone that cares about international development. And, and there are so many conservative governments around the world that have done such great work, including yours. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think back to our, our government with Stephen Harper in 2010 with the Muskoka Initiative. But, you know, we, we think about the big issues that we're trying to deal with at that international level. And if you can build a system that goes into, we talk a lot about the hardest to reach or those left furthest behind. If we can build a system, particularly an education system that finds people who are literally invisible to the system. They're hidden at home. Um, the explanation oftentimes is that, uh, you know, the, 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 there's a curse on the child or whatever the case might be and such huge stigma around it. If we can build a system that reaches out, finds them and includes them in the hardest to reach places in the world, we're going to have a system that reaches everybody along the way. And so this has been a real focus for me. Um, it seems to have a lot of traction. People, um, you know, can't always find common ground in every area that we work on as politicians, but this is an area that seems to be easy to find common ground on and uh, something that we can really build around with, uh, with tangible impact. And one of the things that I often say, if, if we can uh, not just see the challenges um, that people with autism or other developmental disabilities face, uh, if we can also see their strengths and skills and abilities and include them to the level where we're more aware of those, our societies are just going to be better off across the board. I mean, you touched on uh, conservative governments there. Um, we obviously have a conservative government in the UK in power at the moment. Um, I know with Canada, it's been if you like a while now since we've seen um, a conservative government. We've had, we had nine years of Stephen Harper. Um, and now we've had six years of Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party. Um, how do you see the, the Conservative Party of Canada um, starting to look to win sort of a majority? As last election, you did begin to close the gap uh, with, with Trudeau losing his majority. And, uh, and that leads me also on to how do you feel Justin Trudeau's time as the country's prime minister has fared so far? A uh, couple, those are big questions, actually. We could probably use the rest of our time uh, with answers <laughs> to those. But uh, um, let's deal with the first one first. And that's uh, our party and, and what a path to uh, back to government looks like for us. In the last election, it's kind of interesting, in 2019, we actually got more votes than the Liberal Party got. So we got 6.3 million votes, and I think they were around 6.1 million but our votes were very inefficiently um, allocated, uh, distributed. We had a lot of votes in the West, uh, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, two of our Western provinces. We have 48 of our seats and we won 47 of them. Um, but we lost a lot of close races in the East that uh, in the past when we formed government, we would have won in those seats. We have to figure out a way to find the common ground between the 6.3 million votes that we already have from the last election and about one to one and a half million that we need to win in other parts of the country. And those are people who, for the most part, voted for Justin Trudeau in 2019 and 2015, for that matter. And uh, and we have to you know devise policies that are going to find some common ground between those two. We can't just 
take a hard shift towards uh, towards center or even center left. Uh, in I think a lot of people who might not be in Canada might not realize Trudeau is probably by far the most left leaning prime minister that we've ever had. And uh, in many ways, in 2015, many would say that he jumped over the NDP, which is our traditional socialist party, to the left, that he was actually running a little left of them when he won. And so, um, you know, we have to just make sure that as we move to to find those votes that we need to win, that we find some common ground with our base. And I think there's lots of room to do that. Um, sensible, uh, sensible environmental policy, um, that finds a balance with our energy policy. Canada is a, you know, a country rich in natural resources. And so um, we have a, a standard of a quality of life that we have because of those resources. And people around the world actually uh, have uh, qualities of quality of life uh, because of uh, um, resources found in countries like Canada. We have to find a way to extract those resources and use those resources to protect our quality of life at the same time, um, do so in a way that is, uh, you know, that, that respects the environment and, and, and helps us to tackle the significant challenges um, uh, of climate change, you know, in, around the world. And so I think that we can do that. And, uh, uh, you know, there's an important conversation happening right now within our party in that regard, but it's going to take some, it's going to take some work. Um, How's Trudeau done uh, on the on the fiscal side? So, you know, it's interesting since the 2019 election, we most of the colleagues who are new since that election, we added about 20 colleagues in our party. We we did gain seats. Um, I've hardly met them. Uh, we've we've hardly sat in person. Uh, March uh, March 11th, the election was in October. It took a little while for the government to come back, and then we had our traditional Christmas break. So. Uh, and then March, March 11th, uh, sort of Wednesday of uh, that week in March, when uh, Tom Hanks tested positive and the NBA shut down, it was all on the same day. And, um, and we've hardly seen each other. So everything's been about COVID. And I think that, you know, what he's done well is he's, his government has struck a, you know, a, a calming tone during COVID. Um you know, any government, governments around the world took measures to help people to, um, to, to be able to distance and follow guidelines. I think where the challenge is, is that we as a country have spent more money per capita than almost any other country, and we haven't had the best results. We, we didn't shut our borders down early, early enough, and, uh, and that presented a real challenge for us. We're actually having that same conversation now with the variants. And, um, again, we're slow to, to, uh, to, to close our borders. Um, there is a lot of conversation around vaccines and our, um, our inability to procure vaccines to the same level as the UK or the US or, or many, many, many other countries, particularly early on. They're coming now, but it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit late because they, they trailed the, the variants coming in. And, uh, and we're in a third wave that we probably didn't need to face, uh, at least not to the extent that we're facing it right now. And the government just presented a budget, first budget in two years. And I think for a fiscal conservative taking a look at the budget, you can, you know, you can say that the COVID spending, people can understand the COVID spending in the, in the context uh, um, of, of what's happened. I would say $400 billion in a, you know, in a population that is uh, about 38 million people. Um, there needed to be more conversation as it was happening that 
that spending wasn't just the government quote unquote having your backs it was you know money borrowed from future generations uh you know trade-offs necessary trade-offs perhaps um for some future um programs that you might have to tackle covid right now that would be an important framing but the budget also projects significant deficits into the future and spending that is over 60, a 60% increase over eight years of that they'll have been in government by 2023 if they're still in government. And that's post COVID numbers. So program spending that has just been increasing at completely unsustainable rates. And I think there's, there's going to be some fair criticism. The challenge we have, of course, right now is that we've got COVID in front of us. So we have to deal with that. Very, very important that we all deal with that. But we can't take our eye off the ball uh, in regards to things that are going to impact generations. I look at this as a one or two generation issue, the amount of uh, the amount of spending that we're undertaking. Justin Trudeau um, here actually received quite a bit of criticism uh, in, in the UK when I'm not sure if uh, you recall his speech about the UK uh, being in a, in a third wave or on the verge of a, of a third wave. Um, what sort of lessons do you think uh, the, the Conservative Party of Canada can learn from the 2019 election? Um, and do you think there are certain challenges that you face in particular that, that you need to solve, if you like? Absolutely. Um, you know, we we lost an election in 2015 and then another election in 2019. And I think there's similar lessons from both and there's different lessons from both. Um, I'm personally, I'm not a huge fan of hardcore negative campaigning. I um, you know, you talk to people who've been in the business for a long time and they swear by it and say the reason people do it is because it works. Um, I think that there are some better ways and there are some examples of campaigns that have been successful where it hasn't been as negative. Certainly um, criticizing your opponents when they've been in government for, for two terms, that would be fair game. But I think that we've got to be smarter in our criticisms um, and more, you know, more professional, I think, in our approach to it. Uh, in 2015, we had a prime minister who had been in power for almost a decade in Stephen Harper and um, someone who was very well respected around the world. Um, we had come through the global economic meltdown. He was trusted. Even opponents uh, um, understood him to be very smart as a leader. Um, and we having that asset of that history certainly a challenge of being nine, 10 years. That's a, a you know a time frame that's tough when you get to that point in, in your government. But we we chose to run campaigns making fun of Trudeau's hair. And you know, we we chose a strategy um, focused very much on Trudeau. And uh, I think the assumption was that he was a weak leader and uh, and uh, that we just had to point that out and we would win. Um, I don't I I think it's fair game to say he is has been a weak leader. Um, but at the time, what we should have been running in my mind was, you know, movie trailer style ads uh, showing our leader on the world stage with some of the there were no end of quotes praising him for his uh, his work through the global meltdown. And then beyond that global meltdown, getting the budget back to balance by 2015, we were in a fantastic place economically. And I, I just think that we, we didn't run the right campaign there communications wise. 
in 2019, um, you know, we we uh, we did wind up winning more seats, uh, a significant number more seats than what we'd won in the previous election. So there were some successes to point to. Um, but I do think that on the communications side, again, we got caught up in debates uh, on social issues that uh, that hadn't been issues in Canada for us for a decade, things that we had resolved many years ago. And, uh, and they wound up coming back and, and sort of bubbling up in the uh, in the 2019 campaign, and we just weren't prepared to deal with them. And, and uh, because of that, they, uh, you know, we just didn't get on top of it. And it, I think it had an impact in those seats that we talked about earlier, where we, you know, where we need to win out west, the oil and gas uh, issues, the pipeline issues, the economic issues generally, um, were really strong. Um, but out east, we couldn't overcome the um, you know, that, uh, that difficulty communicating on those, on those tough social issues. What was it like working, um, in Stephen Harper's sort of government ad administration? Um, and what, and another question is, is there much difference that you find in your role, uh, from being, uh, in government versus out of government? Yeah. So it was, it was fantastic. I mean, quite honestly, I mentioned earlier that I think uh, Stephen was you know, one of the best leaders in the world during his time in office. Uh, I think particularly this audience will recognize that regardless of where in the world they are, um, you know, he would be very well respected and rightfully so. I personally think he's, uh, you know, the, the greatest prime minister during my lifetime, certainly. Uh, that Canada's had. Um, there was a stability there, um, a professionalism. Um, you know, there was just a, it, it just, you, you felt secure, you know, as, as a country and we were really on a, on a good path. Um, I, I often quote uh, um, John Wooden, uh, one of my favorite quotes and, and uh, one of his sort of keys to success is to surround yourself with smart people who will argue with you. And, uh, and I think as a government, I think uh, the Prime, Prime Minister Harper did that. Uh, our cabinet was full of very strong personalities, um, very smart people uh, who, were, who were not afraid to speak up and encouraged to speak up. And interestingly, that's not his public persona. So um, publicly, and especially amongst uh, you know, the media and people who lean more towards the left, our opponents, um, they would they would argue that he was controlling and uh, try to paint that picture, but that wasn't my experience on the inside. My experience on the inside was that uh, he always knew his stuff, and if you were if you were going to weigh in on something, you better be prepared uh, for some pushback if you hadn't done your homework because he always had. And uh, but but he he did appreciate people who who came forward with ideas and we had some, you know, we, we we had better policy because of it. And I think we're missing that right now. Obviously, it's not long now to go before uh, the 2023 election. I know there's a lot of rumors uh, circulating that the election could be uh, quite a bit sooner than that. Um, I, I think we saw Justin Trudeau change quite a bit of his cabinet earlier on. Uh, this year, um, and, and many people are viewing that with a slight improvement in his approval ratings. Um, for, you know that could hint towards an election potentially being this year. Um, what are your thoughts on a, on an early election, and how do you think the Conservative Party of Canada would react to the prospects of an early election? 
we'll be ready. I mean, if we if we have an early election, we'll be as ready as as anybody else. I think um, you know we there is substantial uh, amongst a, a good portion of the population. There's substantial dissatisfaction with the work that Prime Minister Trudeau's done and how he's handled the pandemic. So. Um, you know, in terms of raising money and volunteers who are fired up and energized, uh, we'll be ready. I mean, of course, fighting election in the midst of a third wave will be would be challenging. So we'll see where things are at COVID wise. Um, I think that if he was to call an election too early, um, this third wave, it, you know, it, it uh, would be seen as opportunistic, I think. Um, but uh, I do think that he probably, and, and there's probably a calculation within the cabinet that earlier is better, um, less time for, for Canadians and parliament to sort of dig into the numbers around COVID and um, the accountability for the, the, the record levels of spending that, uh, that occurred and, and the approach relative to other countries. But uh, yeah, we're, you know, you, you always have to be ready in a minority parliament and our party's always done a good job of that. So we're prepared to go if we have to. I mean, we're talking quite a bit about Justin Trudeau um, and we, we had Michael Strong on our platform at the start of this year and uh, we, we discussed about um, him being a, a compassionate conservative and one of the almost issues uh, for conservative members, conservative members of parliament, generally conservative people is almost attacking Justin Trudeau um, as he does have quite a strong, if you like, a uh, personal image, he does show and is a, a very empathetic person. Is that something that you're worried that the Conservative Party has a difficulty with dealing with? Because we, we had someone recently from the New Zealand National Party who talked a lot about uh, Jacinda Ardern in uh, New Zealand, where they felt it's very hard for them to attack Jacinda Ardern, um, especially in a, in a global pandemic where you know, uh, people would be almost craving for more sympathy as opposed to uh, people on the, the offensive side of things. Is that something that, that is potentially an issue for the Conservative Party and, and, and members like yourself? I think, it's a, I think it's an issue for everybody in opposition right now is, uh, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to be seen as being political and partisan in, uh, in the context of a sort of need for everybody to come together. And, you know, um, Prime Minister Trudeau, he's done a he's done a good job on the empathy side. There's no question. Um, anybody that watches for the first several months uh, coming out of the cottage, Parliament wasn't sitting; they'd shut down Parliament, and so being that reassuring voice coming out and doing his daily statement in the early days um, was, uh, you know, was a good look for them. That's continued. That type of messaging has continued as we've gotten into question period, but. If you watch it, it's it's almost become um, becomes mind numbing a little bit. The you know this government has your backs is I bet you fifteen times every question period that phrase is used. Um, the idea that we're in this together and all of these things are you know they're important. We are in this together, but that's not an answer. I mean, if we're going to get the best um, if we're going to get the best policy outcomes, you have to have an opposite. You have to have a parliament functioning which in for six months in the early days of the pandemic, we didn't even have a, a properly functioning parliament. We basically had a glorified committee where some members went into the House of Commons and debated stuff. And I think on four or six or eight occasions sat as a parliament to rush through some uh, pandemic related legislation. We went two years without a budget. 
Um, these are relevant concerns. It is, uh, and, but it's a fine line, right? If your parliament is functioning and you're going hard at the government, you definitely don't want to be seen to being partisan. I would make the argument at the time, because those who advocated for the government's position of not having a parliament functioning, um, you know, talked about the fact that we need to all be working together. I would argue that uh, Canadians would hold a, you know, opposition parties to account if we were too partisan, and it was way too important for our parliament to be, you know, parliamentarians representing our constituents to be able to ask the government why we didn't have mass rapid testing development or to find out where we were on rapid dependable testing uh, development to ask questions about the quarantine plan that came out towards the end of the year that um, came out as almost a rumor a leak people didn't actually believe it was serious and then it wound up a couple months later being the plan um, talking about border closures and and all of the different things that we needed to do and most importantly at that time we could have been asking back in April and May and June of 2020, we could have been asking about vaccine procurement and really getting to the bottom of, uh, of what was going on there because the government had, they had cut a deal with uh, sort of a Chinese entity, uh, Chinese Canadian entity um, to, uh, to procure vaccines that was clearly not going to produce anything. It seems that the government knew that. And yet, we didn't have an ability or a venue to even ask questions. At one point in time in the summer in August, um, there was a there had been a scandal brewing with an organization called We um, for a couple of months from June, July, and August, and there were committees looking into it. And really important when you're talking about the amount of spending the government's doing, it's quite important for Parliament to be able to ask about that spending. Uh, it's not political; it's necessary. It's a you know part of the accountability function. And uh, right in the midst of that, the government uh, made the decision to prorogue Parliament, um, which uh, which means basically that everything was shut down for six weeks until towards the end of September when they did a throne speech. And um, not only did it shut down these committees that were looking at, like the Ethics Committee, uh, looking into the, the WE scandal, but it shut down the health committee, for example, where uh, they were, you know, asking important questions about Canada's COVID response, um, sh shutting down a, a committee studying your COVID response in the midst of, uh, or just heading into the second wave, actually, at the time was uh, completely counter to good public policy and a process to get the best uh, uh, results for Canadians. So it's firstly, do you think that COVID, they've almost been able to use uh, COVID and what's going on with lockdown to almost avoid uh, questioning from both the public and opposition? Absolutely. I, I, I think that's very fair in the early days. Um, I think that we face a challenge that many conservative governments have faced and, and we've faced our oppositions have faced and we faced it when we were in opposition in the, you know, in, in the late 90s and early 2000s as well, which is um, for whatever reason, the media pays more attention when left leaning parties are in opposition and um, they pay you know, less attention when to the questions conservatives are asking. Um, and somehow we've got to find a way to cut through that. Because um, there are really important questions right now that can't be just brushed away with, uh, you know, this government's got your backs, um, you know, significant questions about uh, about border closures right now at this point in time, that's a, you know, a significant issue. Um, the government has taken steps in recent days, but when they took similar steps back in the spring of 2020, 
they weren't followed through. And so I think there's some pretty important questions that have to be asked there. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, on the on the vaccine front, we've got to find creative ways to highlight the fact that answers aren't coming in question period. Um, perhaps it's a little bit different than it used to be where, you know, question period was was broadcast on CPAC or, you know, maybe shown a little bit on the news, but we didn't have social media uh, around um, in this day and age uh, when you don't get the answers in question period. Uh, you do have ways to pull them and cut them and show people that that's happening. Um, but you got to be creative, you, you know, hire more people in the sort of creative industries to, to make sure that they can do that. But as we do that, here's, here's something that's really critical is that there has to be truth in what we're saying. And too many political parties fall into the trap of not giving complete context um, to uh, to what they're trying to say. We have to make sure that we're capturing the you know the 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 actual context of what's being said or not being said in question period and highlighting it fairly so that uh, nobody can discount it. It's really really important. And I think um, I think there's a big win coming for parties wherever they are in the political spectrum that can communicate in ways that people will trust. So make sure that you communicate. I think take difficult concepts and can simplify them for people, but communicate them in a way that uh, there's a little bit more context there than, uh, than what we might've done in the past. Because I think people are longing for that right now um, in this sort of era of misinformation and no-name accounts on Twitter um people people are looking for credible sources of information and we can and we can be that for them uh more than we have in the past so that's one avenue that we can take social media is really interesting that uh that you've mentioned there i think um you saying that the the media almost has a bit more of a left-leaning bias is something that here, here in the uk we definitely probably would agree with uh, as as conservatives um but social media can be quite difficult uh, for our party and our, our members and our members of parliament. Generally speaking, it's almost uh, an acceptance that we lose on social media, especially on, on the Twitter world and Instagram. I think on Facebook, we, we tend to fare a bit better. Um, but on, on Twitter and Instagram, it, it, there is a clear left-leaning bias and almost um, stronger hold of uh, people there. How do you tackle that um it, on on social media because it, it is a, a difficult space i'm sure you get a lot of criticism and we are stuck in these sort of echo chambers um how do you manage actually giving out useful information on your social media accounts so first of all i do all of my own social media and if people go to my twitter or facebook or instagram accounts it means a couple of things i mean there's some downsides to it i'm i'm behind on instagram um, Instagram's a little bit tricky because you can't just fill it up with uh, a whole bunch of screenshots of Zoom meetings you're on. It gets uh, it gets kind of boring. So, uh, but on Instagram, in a real in a general world, Instagram's a place where you gotta you know you gotta be a little bit more personal. I'm not a big fan of the throwing up graphic after graphic after graphic uh, attacking the government because I don't believe that people who are on Instagram that that's what they're there for. Um, certainly sharing some of your personal story um, at the same time as just some sort of warmer posts of pictures when you're uh, out and about on Instagram is a, is a good strategy. I do think that um, it, it doesn't work for everybody. I mean, it clearly wouldn't work for a leader of a party to do their own Twitter and stuff, but for the right people, um, it adds a personal touch when you're doing it yourself. And so uh, anybody that goes on my Twitter page knows that it's me. Um, and I tend to focus a little bit more time there. Um, 
and content. Uh, we've got to do a much better job on creating content that we can get out there. And I, I really do. I think there's a power for us to share personal stories. So, um, you know, I'm very open uh, about uh, the having a son with autism and the fact that uh, um, when I share his story, there's a lot of people out there that resonate with it. There's families who are looking for a champion, but there are a lot of people out there who want to see conservatives engaged in those kind of issues. And if you think about our caucus, we have 120 members of caucus. In addition to the very important work that we do on, you know, immigration or um, justice or whatever it is, uh, every one of us have things that are in our personal life that uh, are life experiences that we that are relatable to people. And I think that we've got to do a better job of, of sort of dividing that up and taking on some of those issues uh, using the platform we have, because it really does, number one, it most importantly makes a difference in people's lives, a meaningful difference in people's lives, but it also um, makes us more relatable to to people who are you know going through similar things and so i think sharing a little bit more personally is powerful and then i would say the other thing is just i think we've got to cut the edge off the tone and i think this goes for not just parliamentarians politicians this goes for conservatives across the across the board here in canada there are a couple of names that uh, that uh, you can that you know sound a lot like trudeau that you can attach to him on social media and um, and they take off. And I ask people if you're using, if you're calling the prime minister a clear name on Twitter, you might get a thousand retweets, but not one person who voted for Justin Trudeau is going to see that and go, oh, you know, they're right. I'm going to I'm going to vote conservative now. And so we really have to give some thought to the, the the tone of our communications. And I encourage people when they're communicating on social media, be respectful. Um, you can be firm. You can be funny. Um, but be truthful and be respectful. And, you know, is what you're saying fair? Is it important? Um, and, uh, you know, we just, as conservatives, I think we've got to take on a, a little bit of a different tone. Um, and then I, you know, then there's civility in politics just in general. And I think that as we kind of take a look at what's going on in the social media world, it's just, it's across the board bad for democracy. You know, you've got people on both sides just bombarding the other side and these echo chambers you talked about, like everybody is living in a complete echo chamber right now. And so you're, you know, not only the people you follow wind up reinforcing everything you already believe, but the ads that you get uh, reinforce it, the suggestions, the algorithms uh, drive you to more of that. And uh, we've gotten to a place where you can't have a debate anymore. You can't persuade anyone anymore. Um, because people have already made up their minds. And even in a regular conversation, people are spewing talking points at you. Just regular people uh, are spewing, uh, you know, uh, uh, political talking points. And so you can't, you can't have a good political debate with somebody anymore. It's getting harder and harder, isn't it? Definitely. I, I think it, it's, I think that middle ground is very quickly evaporating. Um, I think it's, it's really difficult I think anyone, um, I think on, on both sides, uh, I, I feel we're probably more in the minority as, as conservatives on social media. And um, I think it is getting it is getting quite toxic and it, there is almost like a, a yelling match going on, um, which brings me on to something that you've been doing um, really, really well. I was uh, fortunate enough to be asked by you to uh, attend one of your Zoom happy hours, and which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, maybe you could, tell our listeners and our, and our viewers a bit more about that yeah it's um you know it kind of spun out of uh i've been listening a lot to podcasts during the early days of the of the pandemic and 
listening more and more to people like Dan Carlin, who admittedly in, in the US, he leans more left, um, but a very thoughtful, thoughtful guy. He does a hardcore history podcast and then uh, does one called Common Sense. And, you know, listening to people like him and others um, lamenting the this sort of political discourse um and, and sort of where it's going and then you saw the events down in in the states during first the summer um and then uh and then uh, january 6th and anyway during all of that um we were as a team talking about okay how do we how do we use the platform we have to start bringing people together and having conversations so that uh, the, the conversations aren't just happening over social media so we we have this cool network after 15 years a member, member of parliament uh, especially in the world that i work in with the sort of international development work and um done a lot of that we we know some fantastic people from across the political spectrum and we had this new you know new it wasn't new technology in zoom but the the difference being that everybody actually knew how to use it now. Um, and so this ability to bring people together who you might have waited for the UN General Assembly to see or some conference you were going to, uh, the Global Disability Summit in London that I went to a few years back, right? Those are great places to meet people, but now we can bring them together on Zoom. So we started saying, well, what if we had a, you know, not just another roundtable meeting, because everybody has 15 roundtable meetings every day on Zoom. What if we had a social, you know, uh, kind of like a patio on Zoom? And so we do started doing these Zoom happy hours on Fridays, closed group. It wasn't broadcast. Nine people um, just grabbing a couple of drinks, four o'clock Eastern time till 5.30. We kind of got it down to a science, 90 minutes. Uh, uh, you can't come late. You have to be on time because you don't want people coming in and out of the meeting. And uh, and we just go around the table and we might have, you know, you from the UK and I might have uh, David Mosscrop, who's like a hard left uh, um, writer here in uh, Ottawa, but a reasonable guy. Um, we've had Aaron O'Toole on before. We've had a lot of Harper era political staffers and colleagues of mine, um, people from the media. And we have this, just a great conversation every single time. We're up to about over 200 people in this Zoom happy hour universe, we call it. Um, and it's just people who, you know what it comes down to there? The label that's most important to them is human being before their party affiliation um, or any of the multiple labels we want to attach to people all the time. Everybody just comes in with a with an open mind and knowing that they're going to have a great conversation. And we have a do no harm rule. So you're not allowed to hurt anybody based on um, on what you hear at it. And for an hour and a half, we have some of the best conversations you can imagine. I know that uh, some of the people from those Zoom happy hours are uh, tuning in today, but they've been fantastic. And every single time people just walk away saying, this is what we've been longing for. So the challenge now is we've expanded it to three days a week. We do them Tuesday, Thursday, Friday now. Significant investment of time and staff time to coordinate. But, uh, but the hope is we've had many of these, many of the folks that have come out are doing their own now. And so it's creating a little bit of a ripple effect, but we're trying to figure out where do we go from here. We've done one on a we've done one on a podcast uh, that runs here in Canada, a political podcast. So we did a mini version of one there, um, but they're they're fantastic. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it when uh, I attended. It's, it's, it's a really good mix of people, and uh, yeah, a very engaging, almost like a safe zone where you, you can talk about your, your beliefs and opinions, and you're not on, on Twitter fearful of. Uh, being attacked left, right, and center. So it was a really uh, enjoyable experience. Um, would you say it almost was also born from uh, something that you've spoken about in, in the past before with this sort of uh, political discourse? 
Um, would you say that had an impact? Oh, absolutely. It was a, such a big part of it. And I can actually, I've got a video. I did a one minute statement in the House of Commons uh, about, uh, I guess, a couple months ago. And I can share my screen. I'll show that too, because it's, uh, it kind of, I put some effort into it and captured what it is that I would want to say. So I'll play that for you here. And uh, then we can talk about that a little bit. Mr. Speaker, the past several years have been challenging for global democracy. We've seen a rise in polarization and increasingly vitriolic language expressed by hyperpartisans from all sides. Too often, this leads to violence. Social media has exacerbated the problem. Sides are chosen and anchored in Twitter bios. Talking points are delivered in echo chambers, amplified by cryptic algorithms. Six decades ago, President Dwight Eisenhower seemingly anticipated our current need for wisdom, saying, quote, the middle of the road is all of the usable surface. The extremes, right and left, are in the gutters. Mr. Speaker, before our political labels, we are all just human beings. The middle of the road is simply our common ground. Make no mistake, passionate political debate is foundational to a healthy democracy, but it's most effective when we engage in conversations not only seeking to persuade, but open to being persuaded. This will require a significant shift in our current thinking, but in the end, we'll all be better off for it. So, you know, so that was from a couple of months ago and that got a little bit of coverage. I did some media around that as well. Um, you know, we have this again, I talk about that platform we have, and I love those words from, from you know, from Eisenhower so many years ago, uh, Republican president who, um, you know, and, and remember finding that middle, the middle of the road, I guess, in a sense, it's not necessarily talking about just policy. It's talking about kind of finding common ground, right? And how often these days are we actually seeking to find that common ground with people who come from a different political party? We spend all of our time. It seems like we spend all of our time on all sides focused on the things that divide us. And so when someone has an idea, our first instinct is to, to uh, have, have meetings and policy and issues people go in and find out why that idea is terrible if that idea comes from the other side. And, um, you know, again, I've said this before, I think as a, as a movement, as a party, um, you know, certainly here in Canada and, and uh, in, in, in the US and in the UK countries that I'm more familiar with, I believe there's, there's a big political win for us if we can, if we can get there, find that type of approach, um, because that's where people are right now. Um, they're looking for that. They're, they're tired of the noise. We see it. It doesn't feel like they're tired of the noise when we're on Twitter. But I think that the regular person on Twitter, um, the regular person on Facebook, they're just sick of their their uh, timelines being filled with uh, angry politics. Um, they want something a little bit different. I, I think that that video you shared there, I, I remember watching it and thinking that was um, very well said. And it's something that in this country we regularly talk a, a lot about. Um, I, I think for us, the, the, the thing that's very popular in our country is our sort of pub culture um and i think having those conversations in pubs in almost uh, open and free environment has been uh, a great thing and i think social media is almost in some ways for a lot of us here in the uk it's really putting us all in these sort of boxes and i think when we then hear people who think differently to us we, we feel a bit agitated and we feel um 
we don't feel as comfortable uh, in that environment. Whereas in sort of gen general pub culture, you know, you, you're forced to be around people who are different to you and you kind of adapt to it and you, and you share some great ideas and you learn different things. So it's, that uh, video really resonates well and I'm sure it resonated well with a lot of our listeners. Um, I, I suppose that leads me on to your experiences in the UK and, and, and London. Um, I, I know you've visited it a few times and I'm sure you've got a few interesting stories to tell us. I love, I have to say, I love the city. Um, I've probably been there, I don't know, five or six times. Um, haven't had the chance to travel much beyond London. Um, normally when I'm there, it's for a, a purpose. And uh, I usually try and extend a little bit. Oftentimes when I'm staying there, I stay at a, at a hostel. And I had never stayed at a hostel when I was younger. It's something that I've only done uh, when I was older. There's a place called Wombats, which is about five minutes walk from the Tower Bridge. But um, just that that area is absolutely uh, mesmerizing to me. When I walk around, you see the, the Shard. And I know everybody either loves or hates the Shard. Um, but some of the markets, Camden Market and getting up there and, and uh um the market uh there's a market uh right downtown right by the river there the uh, I, can't, I can't remember which borough one market maybe yeah 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 borough market oh my gosh what a fantastic experience to be able to walk through there and, and and around the streets it's kind of funny my first time i actually went there at um uh to escape just i needed a couple of weeks off i think it was not that far after the 2015 election and i i stayed at uh, this this wombats hostel and i was just traveling by myself and i was just so looking forward to just getting away from places where anybody knew me and the very first night i was in the pub downstairs in the in the uh in the hostel and uh, heard some guy talk and it was, uh, you know, people talking pretty loud, a lot of people down there. And uh, all of a sudden I heard the word Edmonton. And of course, I uh, looked over and waited a few seconds and thought, should I should I say anything? And uh, and I did. I asked him about it. And then the second I turned to him and said, did you say Edmonton? He turned to me and goes, you're Mike Lake. My brother worked on your campaign. So so much for the anonymity of uh, of traveling by myself and getting away from it all. So um, and he'd had a few drinks. So he subsequently announced everybody in the pub that I was uh, Mike Lake, a Canadian member of parliament. So uh, it's uh, as much as you as much as you think that you can get away uh, and, and escape. It's kind of hard in the world we're in. But I love uh, I love London. It's a it's one of my favorite cities in the world. So and I hope to uh, I have a friend who did a walk across the sort of northern region of the country. I guess there's like a, I think it was a 13 day walk from one coast to the other, staying right. in bed and breakfast and stuff. And that's uh, something through the Lake Di District. So something that I'd love to do at some point in time, too. Definitely. Well, I'm sure uh, next time you are able to come to London, we, you know, we can maybe do this event in person um and uh and we we tend to host our events in, in the house of commons so that'll be uh, a, a good fun experience um i'm going to take one quick question from our audience it's from charlie who um is a regular um uh, viewer of our, of our podcasts um he he said he'd like to ask about your uh, autism uh, advocacy work he, he's proud and happy that you're supporting autism causes especially for his son Jaden. He himself is uh, autistic, Charlie, and is involved in uh, frontline politics. Um, he was asking, would you like to see more um, people with autism supporting conservatives and being more involved in frontline conservative party activities? I would, uh, I have actually, I have a girl uh, with autism working in my office right now, 
um, employed part-time. Um, she actually has four jobs and one of them is, is working in my office, which is inspiring. Um, absolutely want to see, uh, want to see people with autism finding a home in the conservative party. Um, you know, but I want to make sure that the reason that they find a home is because they see us, um, doing the right thing, making sure that we're, uh, focused on, uh, unlocking potential and, uh, creating opportunities for, um, people with autism around the world to, uh, to, to fulfill that potential and, uh, and, and not just autism. I mean, I think that a conservative, you know, the conservative, uh, um, DNA is that we want to create opportunities for everybody. We see the potential in every human being. Um, to contribute. I talk a lot about it. When I talk about Jaden, I talk about moving from inclusion, which is really, really important to contribution. Because my goal for Jaden isn't that he's just included in things. My goal with for Jaden is that he is able to because he's so happy when he's contributing. And uh, that's my goal for him is that he's able to find a place, uh, maybe working in the public library or something like that, where he's able to, to, uh, to, contribute to the fullness of his skills and abilities. And again, I think that that's something that applies for every human being. And uh, if we as conservatives champion that and embrace that, um, we're on the right path. I, I suppose that leads me on uh, to, do, do you think it's harder for uh, people who have, let's just say, uh, learning difficulties or with autism or um, I, I, I suppose, generally ethnic minorities women to be conservative because there is this sort of stigma that we have in the uk especially i mean there's there was a massive change in the 2019 election where we had um almost record amounts of uh different ethnic minorities women uh, coming forward for the conservative party in the uk but prior to that there was generally a bit of a stigma in, in our country between um th those kind of profile of people openly saying that they're supportive and i think one of the great things with, with Charlie is he is very, um, uh, very vocal about his conservative support, uh, his support for, for the party. Is that an issue you kind of see in Canada? And what more could we do as conservatives, if you like, to, to make it more friendly for people who, let's say, who do suffer autism or who are not typically men to be more pro-conservative and, and voice it? Yeah, I would say our party, our parties, you know, here in Canada and around the world, absolutely need to reflect our electorate and uh, and we don't in almost anywhere do we reflect our electorate the to the extent that we ought to and um, I think our party is taking that very seriously here and not with um, not through tokenism not through um, meaningless policies that are you know that have some label attached to them to uh, you know as a marketing exercise reach reach groups of people but rather, um, policies that are, you know, going to make a difference in their lives. So we've got to make sure that we have common sense immigration policy um, that, uh, you know, that, 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 that brings in new Canadians who are going to be able to succeed and contribute to, to, uh, to our country. Um, we, we need to make sure that we've got common sense economic policy, fiscal policy, because the vast majority of, of new Canadians, immigrants to Canada, 
are coming here ready to work. They're coming here wanting to create a better life for their family. And, and as conservatives, um, you know, we can create policy that's going to have a positive impact for everybody without attaching a label to it. And uh, people will gravitate towards those policies. Um, but then we absolutely do need to ensure that as we're recruiting candidates and going out there and, um, you know, encouraging people to get involved in campaigns and join our boards, that, uh, that we're, um, you know, that we're building a, a team of people who, again, reflect society. And a couple, of, a couple of reasons for that. It's not just about the way that it looks or the optics of it. It's the fact that we're going to be better as a, as a party when we have more people coming from different perspectives who are part of the conversations at our policy conventions and our board meetings and, um, you know, even as we're running campaigns. And so, um, you know, diversity of ideas is a good thing. Diversity of life experiences is a good thing. And uh, um, you can apply that in almost all categories. Here, we're seeing a real move within our party. We're seeing a, a real increasing connection, I think, with the LGBTQ community, um, people who are fiscal conservatives, um, who for you know a variety of reasons haven't been comfortable supporting us in the past, but are more comfortable now. And uh, you know, these are these are. Uh, I think that's a really really important question, Sunil, and um, something that we all need to uh, to keep in mind as we're talking to people and communicating with people. Well, it's been great talking to you, Mike. I really um, enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure our listeners have too. Um, it's been amazing having you back on our, our platform and hopefully we can have you again uh, soon and hopefully next time it'll actually be in person. Um, but no, it, it's, been, it's been thoroughly enjoyable. And I, I want to let our, our listeners and viewers know this will be out shortly on uh, our various different streaming platforms, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music. Um, and yeah, but thank you for, for tuning in and listening. And once again, thank you, Mike, for your time. Yeah, no, I, Sunil, I really appreciate it. It's been great working with you leading up to this. And if if people do want to reach out with feedback or thoughts, whatever the case is, uh, my social media handles are just at Mike Lake MP. I've got a good political name fits nicely on a sign and a and a handle. So just at Mike Lake MP for Twitter, uh, Instagram, and Facebook. And um, I'm glad to be be great to connect with people. Thank you very much. Perfect. Thank you. All.